Biz Women Rock, episode 64. What's up, ladies? Welcome to the Biz Women Rock podcast, where I have the privilege of interviewing incredible business women from all over the world who are here to share their business story with you. So you may have noticed in the very, very beginning when I'm announcing the episode number and just right now that I am no longer saying Business Women Rock podcast because we have officially changed the name and changed the brand of the podcast and of the community to Biz Women Rock. You know what? I could give you a thousand reasons, but ultimately it was because... It's a lot catchier, and people were already referring to me and to the show as the Biz Women Rock Show. So So we decided to make the change. wanted to make sure that you knew that that was official, already right in line with our website, which is bizwomenrock.com. So I'm very, very excited about that. You are going to be hearing a few little changes. I'm going to be tweaking kind of the intro music and all that good stuff, so... Um, I'm, I'm just really excited about it. It's so much fun. I got to tell you that um, episode 63, uh, which was the last episode, was with Elsie Escobar. And she's a podcaster and amazing and really talked about the art of podcasting. And it really inspired me to um, not be so robotic with the show. I'm a very process-driven person. So, you know, I do A, B, C, D, and that gets me Z. And it just was incredibly inspiring for me to infuse a lot more creativity into the show. And that includes little pieces like switching up the intros and, you know, trying new things. And and so I'm so excited to be able to share all that stuff with you and to experiment along this way. So before we get started, I want to go ahead and give a shout out to Robin Tanny, who actually featured the Biz Women Rock podcast on her blog, Studio 4PR. And we were featured for her Media Monday series. And she uh, specifically featured the episode with Jolene Moody. So I thought that that was pretty cool. So thanks so much, Robin. I just wanted to say a big thank you to you. All right, let's get on with the show. Today, we have a great treat for you. I have Tracy Belaz, who is the founder of FSR. Now, FSR at first glance um, looks like a staffing agency because a lot of what they do is um, really pair great people who are looking for positions with the positions that are looking for the great people. But what they really are is something so much more grandiose. They really are, um, and their core competency is as a contractor for the government. So Tracy um, has a really great story as to why she started this company and why it really started out and its core competency still is dealing with the government and employing military and veterans. And she's going to go through that story with you. But really what they do is they um, secure government contracts and then find the people to fulfill those contracts. So she's really, the first little bit of this conversation, we really go into the details of how her business actually works. And um, and she'll give you some really great takeaways about how to deal with the government if you're looking for government contracts. So she's just got a lot of really great things to share about um, what her business is, how she has built it, and all the lessons that she's learned along the way. So you're really going to love this conversation. So let's get rolling. Tracy, thank you so much for being on the phone with me today. 
Good morning, Katie. <laughs> I'm so happy to have you here. I am so, so excited to share your story today. You have built a magnificent company with a lot of robustness behind it, a lot of meaning uh, behind it, and you've just done that so well over the past decade. So I'm really excited to really dig in and find out how you've done that. And I want to start this conversation by understanding a little bit about your background and where you came from. So I know that you were a registered nurse back in the day, and my mom is actually a registered nurse and has worked in that field for quite some time. So I'm very interested in what your experience was like as a registered nurse. Well, registered nurse is something that stays with you lifelong. And I started as a nurse way back when, like you said, back in the day, and I was doing clinical nursing for about 25 years at the bedside taking care of patients. My expertise was in ICU and trauma, and I worked in you know, various uh, hospitals in various states. And when I came to the Maryland area, probably about 1992, I started working in various hospitals around the Baltimore area, landed at Shock Trauma Center, which is one of the premier trauma centers in the country and worked there, and I had an opportunity to work at Walter Reed Army Medical Center, which really changed my whole outlook in traumatic care and started taking care of patients that were horribly wounded from war-related injuries and was a very different type of traumatic patient and really fell in love with it. So. I wanted to be able to expand that outside of clinical nursing. What was it about that taking care of that type of trauma, that type of veteran and and military? Like, what was it about that that was so unique versus the type of trauma care that you had done before? The military serviceman or woman that has been injured, they come back into the hospital and they want to get well and they want to go back and serve their country and be with their unit. And that camaraderie, that teamwork, that wanting to be part of something bigger than themselves is a driving force for a lot of them in getting better. And you can see that in their care and when we, when we give them care. And they are so appreciative of the care that they've been received. Now, that's not that other types of patients don't do the same thing. However, where I was working... The uh, patient population changed a little bit. It went from the very large trauma center that started incorporating other types of inner city patient population. And I wanted to move away from that and to be able to work with the patient population that wanted to continue doing what they were trained for and to get back to their unit and to heal and to give back to their country. And it was just a different patient population, and I gravitated towards them. I'm a child of a a naval officer. I I did some candy striping at Fort Belvoir way, way, way back in the day, and I've always been around military medicine just because of my childhood. So I wanted to be able to experience that, and I just really fell in love with the military medicine that I was exposed to at Walter Reed. That's amazing. That must have been incredibly inspiring. So obviously, you were kind of day to day in this environment, really falling in love with it. How did you conceptualize the idea of FSR? Well, I didn't. I went from bedside to business in one giant step. And I worked at Walter Reed as a contractor. I was exactly the type of person that we currently place in the field. I was there working as with other uh, medical personnel as part of their team. Some of them were military, some some of them were government service, some of them were contractors, and I was a contractor. I worked 
there. I was not military and was able to understand what the contracting business was like just from what I was doing for the organization that I worked for. And then I had a mentor that was in government contracting and and said there are opportunities for women-owned businesses. There are opportunities for minority-owned businesses in government contracting. And at the time that I was thinking of starting the business was at the height of of what was occurring in Iraq and Afghanistan, and we were receiving a lot of patients back from overseas, and they needed the help. And so that was the start of my thinking that I could do this. I can be able to provide personnel similar to to me that can help take care of these uh, wounded warriors and put best-in-class personnel out there and give back more than just what I can do at the bedside. So that was kind of how it all started, and it took a little while to get there. But my working at Walter Reed was the precipitous of, of getting me into this business. So let's talk a little bit about what it really took to make that concept a reality, because there are definitely many business owners now who or people who are sort of working in their day job and kind of find a passion, find something that, th- that they really love and are building that and are creating that on the outside. Can you share with us a little bit about your journey from what happened between this concept to what you actually needed to do to make it real and then make it like get it up and running? It was, certainly was not an easy task. I spent a great deal of time just researching who my competition was and what I needed to do to be able to be competitive because this is a competitive environment. When you're working as a government contractor, you have to compete against many other businesses that do the same thing you do. And so I spent a great deal of time understanding what government contract was all about. And then one of the things that helped me as a minority woman-owned business was the fact that I was able to get a certification that allowed me to be able to compete with a limited competition, limited number of people versus a wide open market. And this particular set-aside was called the 8A certification, and it is for minority-owned businesses. It is a diversity certification, and it has a component that you must meet that makes you a disadvantaged business. It was a revenue size standard. And of course, I went from bedside to business. I had zero dollars to my name. And I thought this was the one way that I would be able to compete in this very vast business of government contracting. So I incorporated in 2004 and immediately started working on my 8A certification. But there's a caveat to that. In order to get your 8A certification, you needed to be in business at a minimum of two years with a minimum of revenue of $25,000. I had neither. However, I had experience, and I was able to write a compelling argument so I can waive those two requirements. And so I was able to get my 8A within the same year that I actually incorporated. It took a lot of work. I was working 40 hours a week at night. I was trying to run the business during the day, and I had a family. So anybody looking to go into any type of business needs to realize that there's going to be some sacrifices made and be accepting of that. 
So you were doing all this to get ready. So this would probably be a really great space to talk about exactly what your business model is so everyone can really understand exactly what you were building during this time. So can you just walk us through your exact business model and how all that works, how you generate revenue, where people are, how people are moving through your system? Sure. So what we do is that we actually look at opportunities that are in our core competency. And for us, our core competency happened to be in healthcare. That's how we started out. That was our foundation. And we look at opportunities that the government has and we'll utilize contractors. And then we actually write proposals to bid the work. And when we win the work, we have to then be able to support that contract with exactly what the government is requesting. And so there is recruiting that needs to be done to be able to hire the personnel that's going to be working on site there for the government customer, as well as understanding how to manage that particular contract, understanding how to be able to remain in compliance because there's a lot of compliance issues. So what we've done over time, it's taken me 10 years to do it, I've built an, an amazing infrastructure that can support our business model, our recruiting, our being able to respond to the government, being able to understand the compliance issues, to be able to to invoice exactly the way that's required to be able to run the back office in support of all of the personnel that we currently have out in the field that's working for us. So all these things came into play over the course of time, and I built piece by piece the infrastructure to be able to respond to the government contracting that, we, that really solidifies our business. I'm really glad that you explained that because I think when we first were talking, I really was under this impression that you are the staffing agency and that's sort of like a bland way to explain what it is. Like you were finding kind of jobs and let's say you started in the healthcare space. I know you're outside, you're expanded beyond that now. And then you would find the folks to be able to fulfill those jobs. And ideally you were really dealing and started in really helping military, veterans, all that stuff, right? But what I think I'm hearing is that you really start with seeing a need that is in, for example, the healthcare space and saying, hey, this project itself needs to happen in this particular medical space. Let's make a bid to the government, fill out this contract, and the government can finance it. And then we go and find the people to staff it and, and you know, kind of manage that project. Is that right? That's 100% correct. Awesome. And along the way. You know, our customer is not only the government, but our, but our customer is also the employees that we employ because we want to make sure that they're happy, that we're an employer of choice for them. There's lots of opportunities out there, and we want them working for us for the duration of the contract. So some of our contracts are year-long. Some of them have option years that have five years. So we have employees that have worked with us for the duration of the contract from day one. And so it's our job not only to manage the project, but to make sure that we manage the people that work for us at the customer site, and they're happy with us, that they, we are their employer of choice, and that when the contract ends, there may be a possibility for them, uh, us to place them in another contract, or sometimes they roll over to the awarding contract that, contractor that wins the work after us. But we, during that time, we want to make sure that we've got two happy customers, our government customer or our commercial customer and our employee that's going to be working for us for the long term. 
So are these contracts that already exist out there in the, like, is the government coming up with these are projects that we want done and now we're going to put them out to bid? Is it that or is it you yourself are going in like communicating with hospitals, let's say, or medical clinics and saying, hey, what do you need? And we'll create this project and then ask the government to come in and and, and pay on it. For us, it's the former. It's okay. where there's an existing need. The government will say we need to have this project taken care of. This is the type of organizations we're looking for. This is the type of human capital we need. And they will put that project out for bid. On the commercial side, it can work both ways. We can actually go and work with our customer and help them realize that the needs that they have can be met with our services. So we do both. But on the government side, the way we work and the industry we serve, the project is already there. The government has decided that they needed support. Okay, so let me dig into what wisdom you have taken away after 10 years of dealing in government contracts. There are definitely people listening who are building their businesses and they either currently deal with government contracts or they really want to because they know that there's a lot of opportunity to serve there. There's a lot of opportunity to be able to have a viable business model with the government as a partner of theirs. So maybe one or two major lessons that you have learned in dealing with the government and being able to secure contracts with them. Sure. The greatest one, and probably the number one most important, is deliver what you promise because everything hinges on past performance. If you are unable to deliver on time the what you have promised to deliver, you will not get good ratings and therefore you will not get the opportunity to be able to be awarded other contracts. So however you develop your business model, you have to be able to make sure that you can deliver what you've said you can deliver. So the other pool of people that you said, you know, your client is simultaneously the government in this government contracts and the actual employee who you are coming into bringing in to fulfill the position. How do you make sure that you have a robust community of, of qualified people to choose from? Like what do you do as an organization to maintain and build those relationships and sort of your database of people to fill these positions? When we have a job opportunity, we go out traditionally, as any organization would do, we would source for candidates that are looking for work. But that's not the only candidates that are out there. There are a lot of qualified people that don't even know that they would like to be able to switch their job. So we put on a recruiting hat and we recruit the best in class to be able to work in these positions. So we may recruit them away from a particular position that they are working in. So as we develop this database, we stay in contact with these people because they may or may not fit the exact position that we're looking for. It's, it's very specific. And you have to, for our government customer, you have to be able to fill exactly the specifics. If they say they want somebody who is board certified in a certain field or specialty, you can't say board eligible. 
you can't fill a person who's board eligible when the specifics is board certified. So you may have a lot of people that have applied to your positions or you may have recruited people. And if the ones that don't specifically match, you just stay in contact with them. You develop that rapport. Our recruiters are really good at being able to make sure that they constantly work with them to say, hey, next time around, we're going to put your resume out there, but we want to be able to make sure that you stay in contact with us. Let us know what you're going through. You're just developing this database. You develop the rapport and the connections with the folks that you've recruited for the opportunities you have. Because you may only have one position, but maybe 10 people applied for it. So what do you do with the other nine? You have to maintain those relationships because these are people that you might be able to use later on for something else that comes down the pike. Now, Tracy, you let me know that you have 28 staff members and another 400 field associates nationally, which means kind of 28 people managing your actual FSR and then 400 people who are out in the field who are the the folks who have fulfilled these contractual positions that, that are actual employees of yours. What does it take to manage such a huge team like what kind of what kind of things do you have in place what kind of processes do you have in place or rules do you have in place to manage that team i have a phenomenal group of um, operations managers and uh, program managers that actually manage the contract as well as the people that work on that you know one of our largest contracts has about 76 people that are scattered around in 26 states so that program manager is responsible in making sure that those employees that work for us are satisfied in their job. If there's any issues, they are that go-between. They work with the client as well to make sure that we, as, as an organization, is doing our job and supporting that customer with the best that we can. And so we have several program managers that have a group of personnel, group of people that they're responsible for. And they may, they may be grouped in the customer type, so they may be grouped in the regional. The customer type org could be regionally based. So our, our program managers are they're people people. They're people persons. They understand what it takes to be able to connect with our employees and make sure that they are satisfied with what we do for them as an employer of choice. And so there's just a lot of connecting that, that has to go on. Most of our folks outside of the back office are those program managers. They're the ones that are just staying on top of the day-to-day. Now, no matter how amazing your program managers are, it really takes leadership from the top to make sure that all of this stuff is sort of happening and, and moving like this well-oiled machine. So you didn't start out with 28 people as a part of your internal team. Building up your team really was a process. Can you talk about maybe some of the mistakes that you made either early on or sometime in your career as far as your leadership, things that you that you have learned that you should not be doing that now you know the right way to do them in order to, to really lead your company? And you know what? We've recently gone through several exercises of understanding that and really understanding organizational leadership. Part of my team, I have an expert in that as well as being able to coach me through some of the areas where I'm having difficulty. I am not a formally trained business person. Like I said, I went from the bedside to business, and I learned throughout this process of running a business and 
these things that come when you're talking about how an organization should be should be developed, what your hierarchy is, and how you build the infrastructure. This was not something that I was formally trained. So I learned on the fly, and when I started, there was me, myself, and I, and we just did it all. And I am very much an entrepreneur. I'm very much a person that just gets very passionate in what I do. And so what I failed to do in certain instances was pay attention to the details because I was doing so many other things trying to just get the business going. I was working in my business rather than on my business. So over the course of the time, I hired the right people, and that is so key, is understanding that the people that you have in place in your leadership roles is an absolute necessity. And I've learned that having the wrong person, not that they're bad people, but having the person that is not meant for that position can make leadership difficult. It it can have some challenges. And so we've learned over time to be able to make sure that we have the right people in place, and there's a lot of coaching that goes along with it. So I myself have been coached from my executive VP who has this background and have been learning to be a leader and learning to be a CEO throughout the course of running my business. So it didn't come innately to me. Marketing and and getting out there in front of the customer, those things I can do, but learning to be a leader took some time. And it's just still a learning process today. What do you think is one of the areas that you've grown the most in, like a specific area of leadership? For me, is to really define what it is that I'm asking. I We've learned over time that there are people within my organization that all have different temperaments. And my temperament is very different from the temperament of some of the folks that work for me. And I am, you know, my background is an ICU nurse. I just jump in feet first, get it done. And that's the priority. And I am expecting everybody to do that and to be able to think on their own and be able to read my mind and be able to say, let's do this. And here's the chair, let's figure it out. But not everybody operates like that. There are extremely loyal and dedicated and highly professional, highly skilled people, but they want direction from me in a very specific way because they want to know what it is that I want them to do, how they may want them to do it, and be able to give them a timeline to say, I want this done at a specific time. But I wasn't good at that. I was just like, here it is. Here's the job. Let's get it done because that's how I operated in the early years because that's all we could do, just get in there and do it and work as a team. And as we grew the business and had more people, we realized that I need to be able to be very specific in my direction. And so that's what I've learned. I've learned that. I've learned to be able to be more specific in what I'm looking for. I've got some amazing people that work for me. And they are loyal to the core and then will work hard for me, but they also are looking for me to be able to provide them with some specific directions in order for them to get their work done the way that I would want to see the results. Now, you've let me know that something that's very important to the team that you have built and the team that continues to grow is the culture that you have. So can you, you know, I think sometimes for for people kind of in the throes of building their businesses, 
We're so busy building the business that you forget that you're actually building an internal culture of your team who's who's basically building this company. So can you talk a little bit about what kind of culture you guys do have, what kind of culture you've established, why that's been important to you, and then really the how, like what exactly are you doing to, to really institute that culture? And another great question and another very painful time that we had to go through to realize that, you know, the culture that I thought I had maybe was not the culture that was being built. And so it really is an alignment question. It's really being able to communicate with my staff and to be able to say, this is what I want us to be like, and this is how I want our company to be seen, and this is a story that we want to tell, because that is what is what defines the culture. It's the people within the organization. And so I worked with my executive VP to be able to to look at all of that. And we had to, I had to kind of peel back the layers of the onion and, and say, what is it that I want? We're a service industry. We want to be authentic. Customer service is very important to us. We want to be able to make sure that we meet the mission and we have employees that are happy and that we want them to be autonomous as well as be able to be able to think outside of the box, be innovative and creative. And I'm not the type of person that is going to tell you how to get it done. I'm not a dictator type of leader. I uh, really want to have an input from my team. And I guess maybe that's some of the areas that uh, we had to work on because the communication was lacking. And so we worked on being able to communicate well with each other and how we communicated with each other, understanding each other's temperaments. So I have some people on my staff that I can say, hey, let's, and they will finish the sentence and know exactly what I was talking about. And But I realized that I couldn't treat everybody like that because there was a disconnect in communication. I wasn't communicating to them the way that they needed to be communicated. So we worked very hard in being able to make sure that we were all aligned in, in my mission and vision of FSR and that we all worked towards it, that we were authentic in our approach, that we were authentic in our communication and customer satisfaction was a driving force. What do you do to stay sharp about being the visionary and the leader of your company? Like are there any in particular books that have really like helped you stay and keep working on top of your business? Is there a practice that you have that helps you stay in that strategic and visionary role? What are you doing? Well, you know, I'm not very much of a huge reader in books because I don't have the time to finish an entire book. There are a few that I have read and I've taken pieces out of it. You know, the Jim Collins' Good to Great, um, Getting the Right People on the Bus. You know, uh, Simon Sinek, Leaders Eat Last. These are the types of books that I may pick and choose different areas of it, but I do a lot of my staying on top of business through research from articles. I listen to TED Talks, and the biggest thing that I can tell you that really helps me is talking with other business leaders. It's really understanding how they do their business, what drives their business, because like I said, I don't have that business acumen. I've had to develop it. I didn't come with it. So if I can get that out of someone else and listen to how they did it and take that in, that's where I 
I stay on top of it. I learn every day from talking with other business owners, you know, corporations, people who are in middle management, every person that I can come across through my networking, I try to get something out of. Tracy, what is your vision for FSR and what are you most excited about that's coming up for you? Well, I'm excited about diversity, being able to provide our government customer with uh, a diverse service line, getting more involved in other areas outside of our core competency. I'm excited about being able to look at the private sector and seeing how we can leverage what we know on on the government side and apply it to the private sector. And it's a very different model in that in the private sector, but we've gotten really good at being able to recruit the right person for the job. And so I think that we can help other organizations get the right people on their teams. I'm excited about being able to be an employer of choice for my corporate staff, as well as new staff that may be coming on board, as well as giving jobs or providing jobs for our Americans, providing jobs for our veterans who sacrifice for our freedoms. And if I can do that, that's an exciting thing for me. I, I really want to be able to, to leverage what I know and to be able to put people back to work. Tracy, I really want to thank you so much for being on the show today, for sharing your story and sharing your passion and really sharing a lot of the real things that happened along in your journey to be able to build the company that you have built. So big congratulations to all the success that you've had. And just thank you so much for being here today. Well, thank you, Katie. I really appreciate it. And I love listening to Businesswomen Rock and your radio show is just uh, phenomenal. You've got an absolutely great thing going here, allowing women and their businesses talk about their businesses. And we can learn from them by listening to you. You can get the notes for today's show at bizwomenrock.com forward slash 64. I really enjoyed that conversation with Tracy, and I'm actually going to share something with you that happened um, as soon as we stopped recording, and she shared the story with me, and I was so upset I didn't have the darn thing still recording. So, And this ended up being really the, um, the biggest takeaway for me which she alluded to in this conversation, which, you know, she had mentioned that one of her biggest um, learning lessons in dealing with the government was paying attention to the details. And she, you know, she talked about why that's really important. Well, after the show ended, she really said, you know, Katie, I, um, the story behind that is that I, um, you know, the very, I applied for 50 different contracts and bid out 50 different contracts before I actually got our first contract. And I was, you know, filling out all these, um, all the, you know, paperwork that you need to fill. And she said, I applied for like these four different contracts kind of all in one package. And the one I was really, I got into it. I, I was very, very detailed about it. And then the other three that were sort of included in that package, I, um, you know, I, they were all part of it. So I pretty much like copied and pasted everything because I figured it was all sort of going towards the same thing, even though they were technically four different projects and she turned it in and they came back to her going wait a minute this stuff isn't even relevant to this particular thing and so she was awarded one contract but not the other three and she said if we if I would have paid attention to the details we would have won all four contracts and my business would be completely different today 
So um, I took that as a huge takeaway to, you know, especially in dealing with government contracts, really pay attention to the details. So I wanted to make sure you, you heard that story behind the scenes. I hope you really enjoyed this conversation today. I hope you have a wonderful day and I will see you on the next episode. Little side note, I came into my car to record today and put my final recordings together and it's pouring. Can you hear this? Throughout all this rain though, I'm loving that intro music. Hope you loved it too.